Our speaker today is author and journalist Stephen Kinzer. Currently a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, he writes a column on world affairs for the Boston Globe. Stephen spent more than 20 years working for the New York Times, most of it as a foreign correspondent. He was the Times bureau chief in Nicaragua during the 1980s and in Germany during the early 1990s. In 1996, he was named chief of the newly opened bureau, Times Bureau in Istanbul. Later, he was appointed national culture correspondent based in Chicago. Since leaving the Times, Stephen has taught journalism, political science, and international relations at Northwestern University and Boston University. He has written books about Central America, Rwanda, Turkey, and Iran, as well as others that trace the history of American foreign policy. This afternoon, Stephen will discuss his new book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of, an, of American Empire, and the domestic clamor over America's imperial ventures at the dawn of the 20th century. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Stephen Kinzer. We have never had a president before who was destitute of self-respect and of respect for his high office. We've had no president before who was not a gentleman. We've had no president before who was intended for a butcher, a dive keeper, or a bully. No, these words were not written this week. <laughs> That's Mark Twain talking about Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, these are the two marvelously matched antagonists in, in my new book, and they really do represent two sides of the divided American soul, particularly on this great question of intervention, which is at the center of our foreign policy. So in some ways, they were very different. Uh, Roosevelt was a spoiled rich kid who grew up playing with boats in his bathtub and could look out over the sea from Long Island and started dreaming about naval power. Um, he believed that uh, war was the only suitably noble pursuit for any man or any country. Uh, I found this in one of his letters. I would favor almost any war because I believe this country needs one. Uh, Roosevelt was also uh, a, a great racist who held the dark-skinned races in great contempt. He did not believe that those races could govern themselves. Uh, I found this uh, letter that he wrote to Richard Kipling in which he scorns what he calls the jack fools who seriously think that any group of pirates and headhunters needs nothing but independence in order that it may be turned forthwith into a dark-hued New England town meeting. Um, Roosevelt uh, was a compulsive activist who felt that America should project its power everywhere in the world because we were a superior society. Mark Twain was quite different. Twain had also traveled the world, but he had done that to uh, get to meet people rather than to kill animals. Um, 
Twain had been in places where European imperialism showed its ugly face, like South Africa and India. Uh, he had great admiration for those native peoples uh, who Roosevelt held in such contempt. Um, Roosevelt believed that American power and the symbolism of the American flag was something that should constantly be expanding. Our flag is a proud flag, and it stands for liberty and civilization. Where once it has floated, there must and shall be no return to tyranny or savagery, by which he meant native rule. Uh, Twain was quite different. Twain believed that Americans fighting in foreign wars were carrying a bandit's musket under a polluted flag. And he even wanted to change the flag of the United States to replace the stars with skull and crossbone emblems. <laughs> In some ways, they were similar. Both of them were great self-promoters. They, they invented an image for themselves uh, at a, in an age when celebrity was really emerging. And they became two great national celebrities. Uh, Twain determined, as he said, to be sure that the American eagle would not place its talons into any other land. Uh, Roosevelt believing the only defense that is worth anything is the offensive. Acutely aware of each other's popularity, they did not attack each other in public. But we know what they thought of each other from their letters and their private comments. So Twain considered Roosevelt, as he put it, clearly insane. <laughs> and the most formidable disaster that has befallen this country since the Civil War. Roosevelt returned the favor by saying he would like to skin Mark Twain alive. So what were they arguing about? It was what one senator of that period called the greatest question that has ever been presented to the American people. He was right. It was, and it still is. Uh, the question was, should the United States begin intervening in the affairs of other countries? Uh, now... I had always been aware, as a person who has read a lot about the Spanish-American War and teaches about it, that this was the moment when we made this great decision. Around 1898, 99, we took the Philippines and these other islands, and we began the career upon which we are still launched. Uh, but what I had never realized is that America did not make this decision easily. It wasn't automatic. It wasn't just the logical next step once we reached California. In fact, the opposite was true. The entire United States was caught up in an enormous debate over whether this was a good idea. Uh, every major political and intellectual figure in America took sides. Week after month after year, these are on the front pages of the newspapers debating this issue. Uh, and. Since all my books are voyages of discovery, I'm always looking for some huge event that shaped world history, but that for whatever reason we've forgotten. And there are more of those than you might imagine. So this is certainly one of them. 
This is the moment when the United States came face to face with this enormous, literally earth-shattering question. What should be our role in the world? Uh, now, for those of you that might have forgotten a little of that one lesson you had in high school about the Spanish-American War, let me just set the historical scene. So Cubans uh, were in the third phase of their decades-long rebellion against Spanish rule. They appeared to be uh, reaching success, but the American people had never paid much attention to that war. Something important happened in the spring of 1898. That was when the newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst decided that as a way of increasing his circulation, he needed to have what we in journalism call a running story, a story that's unfolding every day, so people have to buy the newspaper every day. It's a truism, I hate to say it in our business, that the best running story of all is war. Uh, Hearst understood this, and he quite consciously set out to uh, bring the United States into a war somewhere in the world. He realized, and I think quite accurately, that if the U.S. military was fighting in some foreign country, people were certainly going to want to read about what they were doing, especially if Hearst's newspaper reporters were able to build up the heroism of these soldiers and their adventures as we knew he would. Um, so he looked around the world and noticed quite quickly that there was a war going on right nearby in Cuba. So he decided that's going to be the war that I'll get America into. He famously sent uh, Frederick Remington, the illustrator down there, and uh, Remington wrote back that uh, there was no war. And Hearst supposedly cabled back, uh, you supply the pictures, I'll supply the war. <laughs> Hearst was the pioneer of what was then called yellow journalism, what we now call fake news. <laughs> he was a master of it. Uh, when I see what's happening in the media today, as with so much of this debate over intervention, I, I flash back to this uh, era that's the beginning of it all. So I spent a lot of hours in the New York Public Library in a dark room cranking through the uh, microfilm readers, reading the old New York journals of that era. Uh, I see that Hearst understood something about the American people that's still true today. And that is our compassion. Now, Americans are very compassionate people. We hate the idea that anybody's suffering anywhere and we want to go stop it. That's the missionary instinct that helps shape us. Um, so if you want to get us toward any country, just show us a picture of some poor girl that was beaten up because she wanted to go to school, and we'll say, oh, we have to go to war there. Uh, this was true then as well. And the stories that appeared in the Hearst Press about Cuba and about the horrific brutalities being used by the Spanish to oppress Cuban civilians were quite viscerally appealing. They're, they're horrifying. I'm thinking of one in particular in which the reporter visits a, uh, an outdoor holding pen for peasants and villagers who've been caught outside their fortified villages where they're not allowed to be. And they're thrown into this pen under the hot sun with no covering. And there's no food there for them, no sanitation, no water and there's disease in that pen. And the reporter is describing actually 
watching a young woman die in front of him. And then a few minutes later, her baby dies, all accompanied by quite graphic illustrations showing the suffering people inside this pen. It later turned out this reporter had never even been in Cuba. It was entire fantasy. And of course, the greatest fake news story of that era was the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. Um, you'll all remember that ship blew up and took more than 200 Americans to their deaths. The d next day's headline in the New York Journal was, sinking of the Maine was the work of an enemy. And on that front page, which is one of the most marvelously mendacious in the history of American journalism, there is actually a diagram that dominates the front page of the Maine at anchor just before the explosion. And you can see under the waterline exactly where the Spaniards attached the mine. And then you can see the cables that are attached to the Spanish detonator on shore. It wasn't until 75 years later that the Navy finally got around to convening a court of inquiry concluded that the main blew up because of a spark inside the furnace. But Americans were not in a mood to hear that. We were outraged at Spanish horrors and depredations in Cuba, and we went to war there. So it worked. Uh, Hearst's campaign and Henry Cabot Lodge's masterful manipulations in Washington, along with Teddy Roosevelt's work as the public face of this campaign, drove the United States into war with Cuba. At that point, U.S. military strategists came up with one very good point, and that was that since we would now be at war with Spain, the Spanish fleet might attack the U.S. mainland in retribution. So we had to find that fleet and sink it. Uh, we couldn't find it for a while. Uh, it wasn't in Spain. It wasn't anywhere near Cuba. We finally found it in a place no American had ever heard of, the Philippine Islands. Even President McKinley said that when he had heard this news, quote, I could not have told you where those darned islands are within a thousand miles. Uh, so we did send a, a squadron to the Philippines, largely at the initiative of Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, and that, that the squadron under Admiral Dewey sank the Spanish fleet. That's when the big shock hit. The Philippines had been a Spanish colony for centuries. Now the Spanish fleet is at the bottom of Manila Bay. There's been a rebellion going on against Spanish rule in the Philippines. So what do we do now? The United States became a nation by overthrowing foreign rule. So now here's our chance to give independence to another people. But suddenly we began to think, wait a minute. Philippines is quite attractive in many ways. Um, and with Spanish power ending, uh, there's also Guam, that beautiful island strategically located in the South Pacific. Then there's Puerto Rico, there's Cuba. A war that began as an effort to liberate Cuba from Spanish colonial rule quickly became transformed into a possibility for the United States to begin establishing an overseas empire like European powers. Uh, 
That idea delighted some Americans. It horrified others. And that's what set off this great national debate. The first anti-imperialist meeting in American history, which is page one of my book, was held on June 15, 1898 at Faneuil Hall. Uh, front page news in all the Boston newspapers, needless to say. Now, as I have researched this great debate that shook America, uh, one of the things that has kept coming back to me is how amazingly relevant to today are the arguments that were made then. I tell you that we did not make a single argument in favor of or against intervening in Vietnam, Central America, Iraq, Syria, that was not first made then. It all starts here. In the history of American foreign policy, this is truly the mother of all debates. I want to read you some pieces, and in each moment, just think how contemporary uh, are these sentiments. So here's one of the opening speakers, Reverend Charles Ames, at the uh, Faneuil Hall meeting in 1898. The policy of imperialism threatens to change the temper of our people and to put us into a permanent attitude of arrogance, testiness, and defiance toward other nations. Once we enter the field of international conflict as a great military and naval power, we shall be one more bully among bullies. We shall only add one more to the list of oppressors of mankind. From that meeting emerged an organization that became a nationwide force. That was the Anti-Imperialist League, founded on Milk Street, Edward Atkinson's office, headquarters on Kilby Street. Um, this organization became a major force in American life. It published hundreds of thousands of broadsides and leaflets. Uh, their, uh, one of their members, Edward Atkinson, in whose law office the League was founded, became the pioneer of political direct mail. He had a mailing list of 20,000 people around America. He published this uh, journal called The Anti-Imperialist, which was full of reports from the Philippines and... Uh, all sorts of uh, accounts of how much money this was costing us, uh, all the uh, evils that were happening as we were pressing our military power abroad. So during 1898, America was seized by this question. Can a country which became a nation by throwing off foreign power begin to project power abroad? Remember that the United States, of course, had been expanding ever since the Pilgrims landed. Uh, we were told in the early 19th century that we had a manifest destiny to fill up North America. And we did that by clearing the native peoples, seizing a large part of Mexico. We filled up North America. And in 1890, as many of you know, the U.S. Census Bureau officially declared the U.S. frontier closed. So no more room to expand. Then came this question, what do we do now? Do we now say we've fulfilled our manifest destiny? We will now work on building up our own country to make it into an example to the world. Or, having expanded ever since we began, would we just continue after we reach the limits of our continental power and transform ourselves from a continental empire into an overseas empire? Uh, 
President McKinley wrestled with this question. McKinley was famous for following uh, the will of the crowd. He always wanted to know where the masses were, and that's where he wanted to be. In fact, uh, Speaker Reed, a great Maine politician, once said about McKinley that he keeps his ears so close to the ground, it's full of grasshoppers. Um, McKinley might have sensed popular sentiment, uh, wars, uh, American soldiers are there, we're fighting, we have to support them. Uh, sometime in October of 1898, by his own account, uh, McKinley made up his mind while walking during the night in the corridors of the White House. He got down on his knees and prayed to God for guidance. You have all these options. Do we take the whole Philippine Islands? Do we let them become independent? Do we just take Manila? Do we take one island or a base somewhere? What about the other islands? Um, so he said, he, he explained it later, I went down on my knees and begged God for guidance and then it came to me. So this was certainly the most influential divine visitation in recorded presidential history. Uh, God told President McKinley that he should, as he put it, take all the islands and Christianize them uh, as God's children for whom Christ also died. Uh, the Philippines, having been a Spanish colony for centuries, were already largely Catholic. That didn't come up in the conversation. <laughs> but in any case, in, at this moment, God sounded a lot like Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt. So McKinley imposed on Spain a treaty, the Treaty of Paris, by which uh, we paid $20 million for the Philippines, and we forced Spain to surrender all other possessions. We took over Guam, we took over Puerto Rico, uh, Spain had to give up Cuba, and that treaty had to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. That set off an epic 32-day debate that is the founding debate in the history of American foreign policy. Having rediscovered this debate has been a great thrill for me, uh, partly because I see how relevant it is for today, and partly for another reason. For people like me who believe that American foreign policy has gone off in some wrong directions, this story is an inspiration. It shows us that we're not marginal, and our ideas are not new. In fact, this is a rich American tradition that goes back more than a century. And uh, people uh, who have promoted this view over the years and decades and generations are titans to whom we can turn for inspiration. The only depressing thing really about reading that uh, congressional record, and I, I think I might have been the first person in 50 years to open it, is that the senators were so much more articulate then. It's really depressing. Uh, the, the speeches are masterpieces of classical oratory, uh, beautifully structured with biblical cadences and references to Pliny the Elder, the Catiline Conspiracy, things you'd never dare to discuss with a U.S. senator today. So, uh, this debate is truly a stirring moment in American history. I would argue that only once in American history, that was the period of the Founding Fathers in Philadelphia, have so many brilliant Americans come together to debate 
a question that was so fraught with meaning for the whole world. All these senators were acutely aware of what they were doing. They knew that this was not just about the Treaty of Paris. It wasn't just about the Philippines. It was about the path the United States was going to follow for the rest of its existence as a nation. So let me just give you a few snippets from this debate. And again, recognize how uh, resonant these arguments are for today. Here's William Mason, anti-imperialist senator from uh, Illinois. I can't do this with the full cadence, only after a couple of drinks of my evening speeches I really get into it, but I'll give you a little, I'll give you a taste. For over 100 years, every lover of liberty has pointed to this sentence, all just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed. This sentence has been a pillar of fire by night to the downtrodden and oppressed around the world. No, Mr. President, we will not amend that sentence now. Not liberty, Mr. President, for your family as I prescribe it. Not Austrian liberty for Hungarians, not Spanish liberty for Cubans, not English liberty for the United States. I am not American liberty for the Philippines, but universal liberty for which our fathers died. To reply, Senator Albert Beveridge, another brilliant speaker, a young imperialist from Indiana, jumps up and says, the opposition tells us that we ought not to govern a people without their consent. I answer, the rule of liberty, that all just government derives its authority from the consent of the governed, applies only to those who are capable of self-government. By which, of course, he means white people. We cannot fly from our world duties. Have you heard that before? Uh, now, two of the greatest antagonists in this Senate debate are the two brilliant and spectacularly articulate uh, Republican senators from Massachusetts. The imperialist triumvirate, if you want to call it that, consisted mainly of uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, Theodore Roosevelt, and William Randolph Hearst. So on the floor of the Senate, uh, Lodge was the floor manager of the treaty and the Mephistopheles behind the entire project. So here's Lodge during one of his speeches. I do not believe that this nation was raised up for nothing. I have faith that it has a great mission in the world, a mission of good, a mission of freedom. This is another trope we still hear to this day. I remember George H.W. Bush's uh, inaugural speech proclaiming the new world order that the United States would dominate because it's our job to do the hard work of freedom. We might not want to do it, but we have to go out there. And not only do we have to help all those poor, benighted other countries that can't govern themselves, but the ones we need to help the most are the ones that are so primitive and backward that they don't even know that they need our help. Now, uh, the Anti-Imperialist League was very active during this period. It had an amazing uh, collection of leaders. Andrew Carnegie, the richest man in America, was uh, a principal of a vituperative anti-imperialist. He wrote a brilliant article asking how it would be possible to hang the Declaration of Independence 
in schoolhouses in the Philippines, since we have made it a crime for Filipinos to advocate independence. And he ends his essay with a poignant question. Tires the republic so soon of its mission? Uh, Carnegie even offered to pay the U.S. Treasury $20 million to buy the Philippines so he could give them independence. Um, who were the other anti-imperialists? Well, some of them were uh, Democrats, some were Republicans. So uh, re the George Boutwell, co-founder of the Republican Party, former governor of Massachusetts and U.S. Treasury secretary, was the president of the Anti-Imperialist League, the leader of the Democratic Party. William Jennings Bryan was also an outspoken uh, anti-imperialist. The last two presidents, one a Democrat, one a Republican, were supporters of the Anti-Imperialist League. And people who you wouldn't expect to find around a table with a plutocrat like Carnegie were also great anti-imperialists. I'm thinking of Samuel Gompers, the great labor leader, uh, Jane Addams, the social reformer, Booker T. Washington, the leading African-American of that time. So as the Senate debate was going on, uh, these people were also pressing their case. Twain was writing his vituperative anti-imperialist stories. At one time, he even had to welcome uh, Winston Churchill at a dinner in New York. And uh, there were many speeches about the long kinship between Britain and the United States. When it was Twain's turn, he got up and said, I've seen what the British do in South Africa and India. I see what Americans are doing in the Philippines, so I want to toast to us being kin in sin. <laughs> After Henry Cabot Lodge finished his speech saying that the United States had a great mission of freedom in the world, George Frisbee Hoare, the senator from Worcester, jumped up with an answer that we still hear today. You have no right at the cannon's mouth to impose on an unwilling people your declaration of independence and your constitution and your notions of freedom and what is right. He is making an argument we still hear today. Other people have other ways of doing things. They don't all want to do things the way we do them. So this argument, as I said, resonated for 32 days in Washington. Every day's newspapers all over the country were focused on the tally. How many senators on the two sides? Which senator is under pressure? from anti-imperialists. Which one has been offered a judgeship by McKinley if he votes the other way? Uh, foreign diplomats posted in Washington were sending back daily reports. They understood that this was not just a decision that was important for the United States. It would shape the future of the whole world, as indeed it has. The end or the climax of this debate, the, the result is truly remarkable. So the Senate finally voted to approve the Treaty of Paris, and to set the U.S. off on the course of overseas empire with a margin of one vote more than the required majority. And sure enough, one of the people who voted for it did become a judge. Another one took over the naming of all the postmasters in his home state. So uh, that word emolument was around then, too. Anti-imperialists then took this question to the Supreme Court. Is it constitutional for the U.S. to begin projecting its power overseas when no power is given to the U.S. government in the Constitution to do that? And the Constitution says the government has no powers other than those which are explicitly granted. 
The Supreme Court concluded that it was constitutional by a vote of five to four. One vote again. So with that narrowest of margins, the United States fatefully set off on the path of empire. We did become an overseas empire, and then after World War II, a global empire. Nonetheless, I think the American soul is still as divided as we were when we had that uh, very close vote back in 1899. Americans have still not really decided how we want to deal with the rest of the world. We're, we're not good imperialists. We didn't set, sit down one, one day and decide we're going to have an empire and this is how we're going to build it. That's what the British did and the Spanish and the French and the Belgians. It just happened, and the next thing you know, we woke up, and here we were. And we've never decided if this is really a good thing. Is it good for the world? Is it good for us? Do we really know what's good for the world better than the world itself knows? I think Americans are torn by that question. We want to guide the world, but we also want every country to guide itself. Now, those are opposite views. You can't, have, you can't believe both of them. But we do. And I believe our president is the same. Uh, one day it's, uh, we've wasted trillions on wars in the Middle East, and we shouldn't be looking for regime change anymore. And the next day it's, uh, I'm doubling our troop strength in Syria, and I'm putting Iran on notice. So it just depends on what tweet you read last. Um, now, I mentioned that all of my books are voyages of discovery. The great discovery of this book is that this debate ever happened. It, it truly has been lost to history, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to recover this episode. In the course of writing books, you do research that naturally leads you to unexpected places. And, and I had my subsidiary discovery in writing this book had to do with Mark Twain. So I grew up with an image that maybe many of you share about Mark Twain. That is, he was Mr. Nice Guy. Everybody loved him. He just rocked on his front porch and told funny jokes that made everybody laugh. This was not Mark Twain. There was a very bitter, angry, intense side to uh, Mark Twain, and uh, nothing brought it out more vividly than... Uh, the American push toward imperialism. At one point he said, at the beginning I thought it would be a good idea for us to give a whole lot of democracy to the Philippines. But later I decided maybe it would be better if we let them give it to themselves. Here's another uh, wail of despair from Twain, almost an obituary for the United States. This, this one could be published today, ask yourself. It was impossible to save the great republic. She was rotten to the heart. Lust of conquest had long ago done its work. Trampling upon the helpless abroad had taught her by a natural process to endure with apathy the like at home. The government was irrevocably in the hands of the prodigiously rich and their hangers-on. The suffrage was become a mere machine, which they used as they chose. There was no principle but commercialism, no patriotism but of the pocket. So I'm uh, recovering what I think is a truer image of Mark Twain. I now realize he's been bleached for our consumption. 
he was actually, he actually had a much harder edge than we're led to believe. And many of the quotes you'll find in my book from Mark Twain are not in biographies and anthologies because that aspect of Twain uh, somehow filtered out of his legacy. That was another great uh, aspect of the work of writing this book. And finally, I made another discovery of a person who I'm embarrassed now to say that I had never heard of. Although as I go around and uh, talk about him, I'm encouraged to see that I'm in good company that very few other people have either. So let me just ask, uh, as I'm taking my nationwide poll, how many people have heard the name of Carl Schurz? How many of you lived on the east side of New York because there's a park there named after him? I spoke at the 92nd Street Y. Everybody raised their hand. When I said, how many people know anything about him other than there's a park? Nobody. So what, what does anybody know anything about him? German-American. German good one. Okay. Anything else? Whoa, good one. Wow. It's Athenaeum, I tell you. So, yeah, Karl Schurz was one of the most brilliant and fascinating immigrants to the United States during the 19th century. Uh, he uh, was born in Germany. He fought in the 1848 revolution in Germany as a teenager. He had to flee after breaking his comrade out of prison. They came to America. He became an abolitionist. During the Civil War, he was a general. He led troops at Gettysburg and Chancellorsville. Later, he became the first German-born U.S. Senator. He became Secretary of the Interior. Uh, in the late 19th century, he was the leading campaigner in the United States for good government, civic reform, anti-corruption causes. He would have been known to all Americans uh, during this period. And he was an outspoken and wonderfully articulate anti-imperialist. Uh, so Carl Schurz uh, was invited to give the convocation speech at the University of Chicago in January of 1899. By coincidence, it was on that very same day that President McKinley delivered the Treaty of Paris to the U.S. Senate, setting off this great debate. Schurz's speech is a, is a wonderful classic. Uh, I, I've discovered while writing this book now that the U.S. Postal Service actually issued a stamp for Carl Schurz, and I've, I've bought it. I've got the uh, first day cover. And Germany has also issued a stamp for him, and I bought that one too. So I have my little mini shrine for my new hero. There's a, not only a photo of Carl Schurz in my, uh, in my book, but there's also a cartoon uh, showing how instantly recognizable he would have been to all Americans of that age. The cartoon shows uh, Uncle Sam, really fat, uh, and his stripes on his suit are labeled Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and so forth. And uh, President McKinley is fitting him for this enormous suit that is required for him with his new girth. And there's Carl Schurz holding a spoon in front of him saying, Try some of this Get Slim medicine. And Uncle Sam says, no, Sonny, I never did like any of that stuff. So January 2nd, 1899, Carl Schurz delivered an 11,000-word evisceration of the imperial idea. He went through every argument, political, naval, military, strategic, economic, resource, humanitarian, religious, 
and demolish them all. And it's from this speech that I take the title of my book, The True Flag. Um, this is the passage that I think, uh, as vividly as any other, reflects how relevant that period is to now and how much the titans in the period that I write about in my book have to say to us today. Here's Carl Schurz. Let us raise high the flag of our country, not as an emblem of reckless adventure and greedy conquest of betrayed professions and broken pledges of criminal aggressions and arbitrary rule over subject populations. But the old, the true flag, the flag of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the flag of the government of, for, and by the people, the flag of national faith held sacred and of national honor unsullied, the flag of human rights and of good example to all nations, the flag of true civilization, peace, and goodwill to all men. Thanks. Thank you. Go church. Thanks.